Well, let's take our Bibles together. Turn to Genesis chapter 17 in your Bible. Uh, the church Bible, you're going to find that. So there's many in the room if you did not bring your own Bible. And you want a paper one. Um, page 11. You'll find that in page 11. Genesis 17, uh, 1 through 14 is our Bible text. I invite you to read along with me as we hear the Word of God. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is brought, bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh as an ev everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. This is God's word. I invite you to pray with me. As we ask for God's help in the illumination of His Word to us. Father, we know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. That's what you say, including this word. And so, God, we ask for quickness of mind and heart, a readiness to hear and believe, a willingness to submit under the authority of what you have spoken, and that your spirit would have the freedom, the complete freedom to move in our minds and our hearts and bring about the change that you desire for us. All of us in this room know that a mere man cannot accomplish anything of significance. So it is your spirit that we depend on. And Father, I'm a mere messenger here, needing as much as anyone in this room to hear from you. We know we need to hear from you. That is what brings us life. So please, God, speak. Speak now. And we pray that Christ himself would be glorified. We ask it in his name. Amen. 
Just an illustration uh, to, to kind of get our thinking in, in the right direction here. I was thinking about how common law relationships and, and same-sex unions and the civil laws of this nation, how, how much damage has been done to the whole idea of marriage. I, I really think that most people in our culture don't really understand what marriage is. We ask the question, why does it matter that a man and woman, and only one man and one woman, get married? And not just, say, choose to live together. Well, well of course it's biblical. But it's biblical because of what is involved in marriage. For all of us who are married, I hope you know, when you got married, you made a, a covenant to the one who would be your husband or wife. And you did that in the presence of God, before God and before man. And you said something like, to love and cherish for which, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, for forsaking all others until parted by death, something like that. See, if, if you think about the marriage covenant, that covenant obligates the parties in a marriage to at least three things. And I think we take these things for granted. Certain conduct, right? Certain conduct or behavior is obligated. Faithfulness, loving, cherishing, right? There is the taking and the sharing of a name, right? At least in our culture. And there is a sign and seal. And I'll explain it this way. The parties in a marriage are covenanting to conduct themselves, right? In a certain way. Love, cherish, faithfulness. I've said that. But there's that change of name, at least in our culture. The wife takes the husband's name most often. And, and with that name is every physical possession that he has, that she has. Now it belongs to the two. And there is now one name, one family unit. And then there's the sign and the seal. There's the, the rings that are worn. Uh, really a physical reminder to one another, but also to others who are observing. A physical reminder of the permanence of the marriage covenant. Now, so why, why this illustration? Well, well, looking at our text, we, we see here a covenant ceremony. I may be stretching that a little bit, but, I, but I just follow me with this. Uh, back in Genesis chapter 15, we dealt with that a few weeks ago, uh, the Lord there in Genesis 15 promised Abram. He promised and he made a, a covenant with him. And he told him in verse 5 of Genesis 15 that there would be numerous offspring. Then a little later in the chapter, verses 18 through 20, he told him the land that his offspring would, would possess. It's the land that he is actually standing in, the land that he is sojourning in. He is not the owner of the land. He is not the king of the land. He is just a guest. But someday that land of Canaan would belong to his offspring. And back in Genesis 15, the Lord um, made clear to Abram, and Abram watched as the Lord effectively took upon himself the terms of the covenant. So if you remember there, uh, there was animals that were split in two, and the, uh, that was Abram's preparation. And he saw in his vision, uh, or he just saw before him, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch really representing the glory of the Lord passing between the, the halves of the heifer, the goat, and the ram. So the Lord there established that covenant with Abram. And Abram believed the Lord. And the Lord counted Abram's belief to him as righteousness. Now that was in 15. Here in 17, 
ask the question then, then what would be the ongoing evidence, the ongoing evidence that Abram actually had faith? We were told he believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. What would be the ongoing evidence that he actually had faith? What did Abram have to remind him to live according to the faith that he had expressed? And then how would his own descendants, the, the, the multiple offspring that he would have, the Israelites, how would they live out their faith? That's the purpose of chapter 17. So as we unpack this particular text, I, I want you to see, and here's where the connection to Christian marriage is, at least the way I illustrated it. Like our Christian marriage covenants, the Lord gave Abram three things by which his faith would be proved, proved to be genuine. And these really are my headings as we'll unpack this text together this morning. First of all, there was covenant conduct. Second, we see that there's a covenant name. And third, the sign and seal of the covenant. Covenant sign and seal. First of all, as we look at this, covenant conduct. Now, Kathy and I are very blessed to have our, our two grandchildren very close by. I know I use them in a lot of illustrations, but it's just, they're such a joy. We see them all the time. And, uh, and one of the things that we get to see is this close-up reminder of what it was like when our kids were young. Um, we don't have the direct responsibility that their parents do, our children. Uh, so admittedly, things that would have really frustrated us when our children were, were young, Kathy and I kind of look at each other and, and laugh. We try to hide it from them. <laughs> we're amused by it. But the point is, and, and we're much more relaxed about this now, the point is we expect two and three-year-olds to behave like they are two and three. Now, we don't expect them to stay that way, of course. They won't stay that age. And by good parenting that involves teaching, even demanding, right, eventually, over time, they are lovingly directed and corrected and disciplined so that they grow into responsible and respectful and loving adults with the, with the conduct befitting their age, right? That's what we expect, conduct befitting their age. Well, when the Lord called Abram, when the Lord awakened his faith, it would forever change his behavior. The Lord commanded Abram to conduct himself in a manner befitting the covenant. Verse 1, look at our text. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. So, he's 99 years old, now Ishmael's 13. He's been in Canaan for 25 years. Now, before that, he was an idolater. He worshipped idols, living in Ur, among the Chaldean city of Ur, among other idolaters. That's what he was, but the Lord called him and told him where to go. And here in the text, we see the Lord now says to Abram, I am God Almighty. In the text, the original says El Shaddai, that's the Hebrew. And most translations like the ESV render this God Almighty. Um, just as a note here, there's really uncertainty around why it's God Almighty. It really rests on some, some rabbinical traditions, and it ended up in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, no real support for that translation. 
But this, this name, El Shaddai, is really new to us, new to us, the reader, new to the Israelites as they're hearing this story. But this is how God chooses to introduce himself to Abram. But we're told as well that it is the Lord. <laughs> it is the Lord, the capital L-O-R-D, indicating that this is Yahweh who says to Abram, I am El Shaddai. And he is confirming and affirming the covenant that he has made with Abram. But before he confirms and affirms that, he tells Abram now what is required of him. First, he says, walk before me. Walk before me. Now, what that, that expression denotes is this allegiance. He is to have allegiance to the Lord. Abram is to live his life, heart, soul, and mind devoted to the Lord. Walk before me. But then he also adds, and be blameless. Be blameless. Now, of course, the Lord knows that perfection on Abram's part is impossible. That's ever since the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? They introduced sin into the human race, and that's been passed on. So that's impossible. Absolute perfection is impossible. But what he's calling Abram to is this idea of full surrender to the Lord. He sees the Lord as the ultimate authority. So he has surrendered. He's bowed before the Lord. That is, this is what marks his life. And in light of his own failures and weaknesses, his life would then be marked by repentance and a desire for obedience. That's blamelessness. The, the same expression is used of Job. If you look at Job chapter 1-1, he is described as blameless because he feared God and he turned away from evil. Well, this is how Abram was to live. This is the covenant conduct. This is the behavior that is expected of him. Now, it's not explicitly stated here in verse 1, but I take it that the scope of this covenant applies to Abram's offspring as well. We can just look down at verse 7, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. So this is the whole package. Whatever I'm saying to you is for all of your offspring. This is how my covenant people are to behave. They are to walk before me and be blameless. We have to understand something here, that the fulfillment of that covenant did not rest on Abram's obedience. So while the Lord commanded him, you shall be blameless, you walk before me and be blameless, he understood that. The fulfillment of the covenant, the promise that God made for offspring and then a land that didn't rest on Abram's obedience. But Abram's obedience would be the evidence that they are indeed children of the covenant. And the order matters here. Exodus 19.5 says, if, in, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. So that's the setting of the giving of the law at Sinai. If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Again, even though it's stated here in Exodus like a, an if-therefore statement, really the ground of the covenant that the Lord made is the promise. That is the foundation of the covenant, not the ability of his people to keep their part of the covenant. And that's a vitally important truth that we must understand. Because this gets so mixed up when people think about the Christian faith. Well, if I... Do well, 
then God will reward me with eternal life. And I've just got to have enough good. No, that's, that's not how it works. I want you to remember a few weeks ago, back in Genesis 15, 6, Abram believed the Lord. God spoke to him, made a promise. Abram believed the Lord. And what did God say? The Word says it was counted to him. It was credited to him as righteousness. His faith is what caused him to be counted righteous in God's sight. Abram was counted righteous before he behaved righteously. But God didn't leave him in a place where he would behave unrighteously. He said, in light of the promise I've made to you, therefore, be blameless. Walk before me. You see, if he didn't obey the commandment to be blameless, to walk before the Lord, then what it would reveal is that Abram never really believed the Lord in the first place. Isn't that true? He never really took it to heart. And brothers and sisters in Christ, I want you to understand this. This is an important truth that applies to Christians today. You see, we know this to be true, and, and maybe you've had seasons in your life, or maybe you're here right now. There are many who profess to know Christ, but by their behavior, there seems to be little evidence of genuine faith. They live in a way, while claiming Christ, they live in a way to indulge their appetites for pleasure, for getting high, sex outside of marriage, guiltlessly indulging in pornography. This is the culture around us. It's not, this is not a surprise to us, right? The many who profess Christ just like, well, I'm in. I'm all in the culture. This is me. I'm just, but I've got Jesus. They live to indulge greed, acquiring and spending entirely for self, putting confidence in the things that they're able to acquire instead of God. They live to be seen, to be known, to be acknowledged, seeking really the praise of men rather than seeking to direct praise to God. And for people like this, they see Christ as merely a ticket to avoid hell. And in the present, they just give them all the stuff they want. Now, that's not Christian. That's self-worship. That's what that is. It's not Christian. See, what makes you a Christian is that you know in your heart that you have absolutely failed to live up to God's righteous standard. That's what makes you a Christian. You know that the eternal consequence for your own sin is eternal death. You have humbled yourself before the Lord in repentance for that sin. And you've put your whole trust in Jesus, the Son of God, knowing that He died to take your punishment on that cross. He died there to take that punishment. But not only that, but also He died there to free you from sin's power to rule over you. And because you've trusted in Him, you have a different kind of appetite. Oh yeah, you still struggle against sin. But it's a different kind of struggle. You're not struggling to figure out how to do more. <laughs> you're struggling to figure out how to do it less. And you're begging God to free you. And day by day, by day you're, you're, you're trusting and you're gaining victory. And sometimes you, you, you have seasons where it's great and then you, you, you stumble bad and fall on your face, but all the same you come back to the Lord in repentance. That's Christian. Romans 6.22 says, But now that you have been set free 
from sin and he becomes slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, its goal is eternal life. So I think we get this, but it must be driven home. It makes no sense for someone to claim to be a Christian but to have no discernible change of behavior. It makes no sense. Someone can claim Christ but no discernible change in behavior. It's deception. James says in his letter, what good, is it at my, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Well, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Obviously, no. James 2.17, so faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's not saying faith plus works save you. He's saying faith that doesn't produce any good work in you is not real faith. That's why the Lord said to Abram, I'm your God. You're counted righteous because you believed in me, but here's what you do. In light of your faith, walk before me and be blameless. Now, as we think about this as Christians today, what are the works that come from genuine faith? What works flow out of our lives that are as a result of our true faith in Christ? Here it is. It's all-encompassing. It's love. Love. First of all, it's love for God. Delighting in Him. Love for God. But it also then results in love for others. And really, that's the Ten Commandments, is it not? The Ten Commandments. It says, you have no other gods, no idols. Don't disrespect God's name. Keep the Sabbath. That's the first four. But then the next six, those first four are about loving God. The next six, those are about loving others. Honor your parents. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't slander your neighbor. Don't covet his wife and his stuff. That's what James 2.8 calls the royal law. And it's when Jesus said to his disciples in John 13, he said, a new commandment I give to you. Well, he's really restating an old commandment. He says, a new command I give to you that you love one another. And here's the new part. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. So there's the example. That's the new piece, new information. We watch Jesus. Jesus says to his disciples, love one another. And here's the example. Here's the new part, the way that I loved you. And how did Jesus love his disciples? He laid down his life for them, right? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Here's the proof. If you have love one for another. That's new covenant conduct. New covenant conduct, Christian. Christian conduct is love. So let me ask you, is your faith authenticated by your conduct? Second, there's the covenant name. My family, you have to forgive me. I'm just using family illustrations today. It's what came to mind. So my son and his wife are about to welcome their second baby. And so we've been offering some suggestions for names. Some they reject outright. Others they politely nod and say, hmm, maybe. Uh, it's their decision. We get that. And we'll be, we'll be surprised by both the, the sex of the baby and the name when he or she emerges. 
But you get this with names, right? Some names are chosen to honor a dear family member. That's often done. Sometimes they're chosen just because we like the sound. And that's true of each of our kids' names. We chose their names. We like the sound. It wasn't overly deep. You know, in ancient times, and I think you know this, and we see this in the Bible, in ancient times, and it's maybe true of other cultures, names are far more significant, right? So, an example in Jesus, the Son of God. He was given the name Jesus. And that's the Greek version of the name Joshua, Hebrew name Joshua, meaning God's salvation. And that's obviously attached to him, right? Jesus is God's salvation. And then Jesus gave one of his disciples, Simon, the name Peter. It means stone or rock. And he said it to him in the, the occasion where Jesus was declaring what the foundation of the church would be. It's the declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the very thing that Peter declared. So he says, you're, Peter, you're a stone. You're a rock. And I'm going to build my church on a foundation of, of, the, of the rock of the confession. So names have significance. Well, when, when the Lord spoke to Abram to confirm his covenant to him, he changed his name. He changed his name. That new name was a covenant confirmation. Look at verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Verse 5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So the name Abram means exalted father. And that was in light of what the Lord told him. You'll have offspring. You can't be an exalted father unless there's offspring. So Abram knew something about his name meant that he'd have offspring. But he changed his name to Abraham. And that literally means father of a multitude. So he's confirming. The Lord is confirming to Abram here his a covenant name. Not that the first name wasn't a covenant name, but this is a covenant name. So from this point forward, for Abraham, he would identify himself to others as the father of a multitude. That thought would never leave his mind. I am Abraham. The Lord gave me the name Abraham. I will be the father of a multitude. So for Abraham, embracing that name was an act of faith. You see, at this point, Sarah has yet to conceive. There's no son through Sarah. He's had a son through Hagar, the Egyptian uh, maidservant of his wife, Sarai. But that wasn't the son of the promise, and so he's still waiting. But the Lord gives him the name Abraham. Numerous offspring. But that name was that indication. It was a reminder. You see, the Lord gave him that name because the Lord was the one to ensure that it would happen, without a doubt. Now, we ask ourselves, brothers and sisters, what is the most important thing about you? And I'm asking myself as I read this, what's the most important thing about me? Now, regarding names, I'm the son of Melvin and Lillian. Yeah, they're the names of my parents. Don't ever give that name to your child. I'm just saying. Maybe you did, but Melvin, we never used it. Uh, I, don't, I know why. <laughs> I'm the brother to Alan and Randy. I'm husband to Kathy, father to Adam, Haley, and Jacob, father-in-law to Lizzie and Leah, grandfather, oh, what a joy, to Avery and Nora. Now, these are really important relationships. 
and they're people with whom I share a name. But that name, Vinter, is of very little account for eternity. Practically meaningless in light of eternity. As people of the new covenant in Christ, we have been included in his name. Have we not? And after the example of the New Testament, we we usually refer to ourselves, right, as Christian. Christian. Now, after Jesus was raised from the grave, the gospel message, it, it began to spread. Those early witnesses were referred to as disciples or people of the way. But as time went on, they acquired the name Christian. In fact, it first happened in Antioch, Acts 11.26. It was the first place that they were so identified as Christian. Now, initially, it was a, a pejorative epithet. It was. Little Christ's. But, you know, it stuck. As little Christ's, people belonging to the way of Christ, those who trust him not only as the way, but also the one who is the truth and the life, the most enduring thing about us, the most significant thing about us is Christian. I don't know if you've thought about that. Abraham was given a name that revealed his identity. So when you think of your own essential identity, what's the most important name? And I hope you believe it to be that it's the name of Christ. You see, for us, it's not just a label. It's a new covenant identity. We are in Christ. We are in Christ by faith, in Him, united to Him, right? And because we're in Christ... We are not what we once were. And I hope you feel that every day. I hope you're aware of that every single day because 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And what's the significance of that, he continues? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's us. So Christian, embrace the name of Christ on you. Well, let me give you some, some ways that, that will encourage your heart as you embrace the name of Christ in you. Here's some realities of being in Christ. Because we are in Christ, we are not condemned. Romans 8.1 Because we're in Christ, we're justified. Romans 3.24 Because we're not condemned, we are reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5.19 because we're in Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, Romans 6.11. Because we're in Christ, we are free from the law of sin and death, Romans 8.2. Because we're in Christ, we are one body, Romans 12.5. And because we're in Christ, we will be made physically alive with new bodies, 1 Corinthians 15.22. Well, brothers and sisters, I hope it is your joy to bear the name of Christ. We have given a new covenant name. Well, finally, we have the covenant sign and seal. Now, uh, all I know about ranching, cattle ranching, I've learned from Western movies, so I don't have a lot of knowledge about this. So I don't know if they do this anymore, uh, but it used to be that to distinguish your cattle from the the grazing cattle of the rancher down the road, what was required was a brand. That branding was accomplished as you 
No, with this unique insignia fashioned out of metal and fixed to a metal rod. That insignia was then put into the fire, heated white hot, and then it was burned into the hide of the animal. It was painful for the animal, but it was a permanent mark that could not be altered. Uh, I get the weakness of the analogy here, I do, but the obligation upon Abram for his faith in the Lord was a self-inflicted brand, an unchangeable permanent sign and seal that he was part of God's covenant family. And that sign and seal was circumcision. Look at verse 9 again. It's very repetitive. God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout your generations. Their generations. So this is for you, this is for everybody after you. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between you, me, and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male, everyone born in your house who is bought with your money, they shall be circumcised. This shall be my covenant in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male in the flesh of his foreskin, uh, who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, shall be cut off from his people. He has broken covenant. Now, why circumcision? Why not something else? Now, I'm sure you can imagine how delighted I was to preach this passage this morning. <laughs> uh, why would the Lord use something so strange? And, and let's be honest, it's not only a delicate procedure to do, but even more so as a topic, right? So we're not, we're not unaware of the procedure. It's medical. It's performed all the time. And male infants that are days old, we take it for granted, both in the sense that, that some parents choose and others choose not to, and based on the fact there's medical reasons for and against, we get all of those things. Statistics in our country from 2011, 57% of American boys were circumcised. That includes those who do so for religious reasons, Jews, Muslims. But what we're talking about here in the Bible has nothing to do with modern science, convenience, or whatever reasons may be given by doctors when children, male children are born. So, as it regards Abraham, now this practice was not new to him. In other cultures, it was already practiced as a puberty rite or or even part of a marriage rite. But Abram, Abraham was to administer to this, this to himself and then every male in his household. So why this sign? Why this sign? As the Lord would give Abraham a son by his wife, Sarah, I take it that they would both be aware of the Lord's promise in the most intimate space. So going forward, the mark would be administered on the eighth day of the boy's life. And why the eighth day? Well, eighth day, significant for Israelites that would follow at least one Sabbath. That Sabbath always marked a new day, new creation. And I'll remind you in the story of the preparation of the land, Genesis 2, God rested following that And following that day of rest, the work of life began all over again. Following a Sabbath really indicated newness that God ordained. So there's a significance of the eighth day. But then for future generations, and without being too explicit, 
the consummation of the marriage act and procreation. Israelite men and their wives would have a physical reminder given by the Lord and administered that had been administered by parents that their own existence as children of the covenant. They had been born because of the Lord's promise to Abraham. And any children that the Lord gave them likewise were to be children of the covenant. It was the Lord that promised offspring. And that mark was a constant reminder. And also the fact that, that Abraham was told to administer to this mark to everyone and anyone in his household, which included slaves and foreigners. What that did was it, it confirmed to Abraham and future generations that ultimately the promise to Abraham would mean blessing for all the nations, ultimately and in the end, by faith. So it foreshadowed the fact that he gave that mark to all of the males, slaves, foreigners in his household. It foreshadowed the inclusion of people from, uh, from every language, every nation, every tribe under heaven, ultimately being part of the eternal covenant family. But it was meant to be far more than a physical mark. The mark of circumcision was never meant to stand alone. And in fact, it would be meaningless unless it was an act done in faith. So what that was was a physical sign pointing to a spiritual reality. And the idea of cutting, the removal of something that is corrupting, and ultimately the individual being submitted to the Lord. Listen to the, the words of Deuteronomy 10. The Lord uses this language. He says to the Israelites, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Cut away. Cut away what is corrupt in your heart. That language is used again in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 4.4, 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Cut away what is evil and corrupt. Separate yourself from that. Well, what of the right today? The mark given to Abraham. Of course, Jews still practice it according to the Old Covenant in a very religious way. They still, uh, Orthodox Jews, still perform what's called bris on the eighth day. For Abram, Abraham, circumcision was a sign and seal of the covenant that God made with him and his physical offspring. But that sign given to Abraham was really a placeholder, if you will, until the new covenant in Christ superseded the old. As a spiritual, I say spiritual offspring of Abraham by faith, the mark no longer applies. Now, in the, in the New Testament, when, when Jewish Christians, Paul calls them Judaizers, when those Jewish Christians, but maybe they weren't truly believers, what they, what, what they did was they tried to impose the right on others in the New Testament church. The Apostle Paul made explicitly clear that that right gives no one 
any advantage in Christ. He said this, For in Christ Jesus, sorry, Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. For Abram, for Abraham, his faith was proved in taking the sign. That sign, the circumcision, did not justify him. He was justified before God when he believed. We've already made that. Genesis 15, 6. But now, now for the children of God, now for those of us who recognize that in Jesus Christ we are new covenant people, our faith is proven by our love for God and others. Not a physical sign. At least not that one. And so to those in the Galatian church, those who are trying to bind the consciences of the disciples of Jesus, they were trying to bind them in regard to, they were trying to compel them to take on circumcision. In fact, all of the, the, the Jewish ceremonial law that went with it, Paul used some very strong, very provocative language and you get what he's saying. I wish those who unsettled you would emasculate themselves. It's not how it works. So circumcision as a sign and seal of the covenant went away. But what never changed, what never changed was a simple fact that one is and always has been counted righteous before God on the basis of faith in Him. And it's significant that before He took the sign of circumcision. He believed, that is Abram, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So then, is there a sign and seal of the new covenant in Christ? Is there some physical right that points to a spiritual reality? Well, I'm glad you asked. So with Abraham, physical birth after eight days, and the procreative act was marked by a sign in the male circumcision. For believers in Jesus, our spiritual birth, not physical birth, but our spiritual birth was secured by Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. Remember, physical birth and the sign of circumcision reminded the offspring of Abraham, that the Lord provides physical birth. He is the one who's in charge of it. But spiritual birth is marked and grounded and secured by Jesus' death on the cross and his ultimate resurrection from the grave. And so what we have is water baptism. That is a symbol of that act done for us. In baptism, the one who is able to profess his or her faith in Christ, submits to baptism. And that profession of faith is significant because it's the internal evidence of spiritual birth. And for those who are paying attention, why we don't baptize infants. That's why we're called Baptists. Because the sign is administered to the one who actually has some evidence of new birth. Oh, they're alive in Christ. Okay, come to the water. So as Abram, Abraham obeyed in the matter of circumcision, true believers in Jesus obey in the matter of water baptism. 
This is how the Apostle Paul explains it in Romans 6. All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, so the physical baptism, were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So that's what's symbolized here. That's the mark that we Christians take today. Nothing cut in the flesh, but immersed in water, identifying with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And just so we know for certain that this is a vitally important thing, baptism. At the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, he himself submitted to baptism as an example for us. So he came to John the baptizer, John the Baptist. He came to him in the Jordan River. Now, now John, saying about him, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and then Jesus shows up and says, you're going to baptize me. Of course, John objects, thinking that the roles need to be reversed. No, no, you need to be baptizing me. But Jesus assured him, Matthew 3, 15, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. That's at the beginning of his earthly ministry. But then and again, at the end of his earthly ministry, and we, we quoted this passage together, and our brother from CEF also showed it to us. Before he ascended, that is Jesus, ascended to the Father's side in heaven, Jesus commissioned his disciples to make disciples. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. I'm stopping there because that's the command to make disciples. But then Jesus continues. How will we know what a disciple is? First step is to identify with Christ, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If you've been baptized, I want you to see it as a sign and seal of the new covenant in Christ. You didn't just get wet. And I think you know that. It wasn't just something you did because Jesus did it. I mean, yes, we do it out of obedience to Christ, but, but more than anything, it's, it's saying, I'm alive spiritually because Jesus died and rose again. And for those of us who've gone through the water of baptism, I want to encourage us, remind yourself that that public statement. It wasn't just for you. That's why we don't do it in a bathtub or in a private setting. It's for the whole community of faith to see, oh, that person, that one, that one is trusted in Christ. That one is alive in Christ. Cherish that day. Remind yourself of it often. Parents, if your children were fairly young when you baptized them, remind them often what that public testimony meant as you disciple them and remind them to obey the Lord. You said you trusted in Christ. You said you were a new creature. You said you belong to Jesus. You see, the mark, we move backwards, right? We take the mark because we have the name and we've been commanded to certain conduct because we belong to Christ, all in the new covenant. So let me ask you, what is the evidence of your faith in Christ today? Do you demonstrate new covenant conduct? Do you live in obedience to Christ? And, and maybe you're at a place this morning where you're not. It's not judgment here. 
Jesus is the one who judges. But before that day of judgment, he's giving you time. If he's not returned yet, the call to you is to repent. So have you been faking your way through the Christian life? Repent. Turn to Christ in genuine faith. Throw yourself at his mercy. And if you're on that trajectory, seeking to live a holy life, know that it isn't in your strength alone that this happens. Be bold and ask God for every power and every grace to do the things that he calls us to. Pray, God, make me holy. God, make me love what's righteous. God, make me hate what's evil. God, give me the power to obey. And cherish your covenant name. Cherish the label Christian. When the world assaults us, not physically yet, but they mock what we hold to, think we're fools and weak, own your name. Take the reproach of Christ. And if you have not yet, and you understand what Jesus did for you, Come, be baptized. And bear the sign and the seal of new covenant life in Christ. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that by your initiative and your divine grace, you have called us to yourself. We did nothing to deserve it. But having called us and having opened our eyes to your Son, our Savior Jesus, uh, we know that it now obligates us because if we truly have faith, we're going to want to live in a way that reflects your character. And so help us. We're going to want to embrace the name that you've given to us in your son, the fact that we're united with him in his death and in his resurrection. And as we've taken the sign and seal of that new covenant, Lord, help us to live confidently in the world, even if we are mocked and derided, as we wait for the day when he returns and every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord. To your glory, Father. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name.